Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. If we don't think long term, if we start thinking short term, or we want God to act immediately, we're going to get frustrated. We may get discouraged thinking that God's will for my life is never going to be accomplished. Or we may start second guessing what God's will is in our lives. Don't do that. You see, because when God purposes something for your life, He doesn't have a problem making you wait for it. Sometimes He wants us to wait for it. a clear picture of God's plan for your life? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is continuing a message in 2 Samuel chapter 2, just as David has been crowned king over Judah. We know the prophet Samuel anointed David as king over all of Israel, but they wouldn't accept him for another seven years. Instead of demanding power or acting out of entitlement, David ruled Judah and waited for God's timing to embrace his role as Israel's king. Well, here's Pastor Mike. Fourteen second half, bottom of the verse. Here it is, colossal mistake. In the Hebrew, you can't see it here, but it starts with the word, duh, right? Joab says, duh, all right, let them do it. Now, let me tell you why that's such a stupid thing. Here is Joab. He's on the winning team. He represents the king that God has established to be king. It is God's will that David become king. He is going to win. But instead of being a defensive commander, trying to protect the families and lives of the anointed king, he gets pulled into this line-in-the-sand, schoolyard mentality, put him up, let's fight. And instead of saying, no, we're just here to defend our king, he says, duh, yeah, let's do it. And Joab on the winning team, with God on his side, chooses to try and establish David's kingdom, God's will, in his way, a way that is not acceptable. Why do I say that? Because if you were to read the Torah, the Pentateuch, and look at the Old Testament principles that are to govern the relationship between fellow Israelites, you will know it is unthinkable, it is reprehensible to see brother Israelites fighting with brother Israelites. This is not good. Everything in the Pentateuch tells the Jew that a fellow Jew gets all the rights and privileges of an actual blood sibling. Now, I know that you parents out there, if you have knowledge of the real world, there are times you know that a a schoolyard child may have to fight and defend himself, right? He may have to protect his little sister. He may have to protect his orthodonture. He may have to protect whatever, but there's a time for him to, to fight. But if your child has a beef with another child in your family, there is no way as a parent with any sense you will tolerate saying to your kids in the midst of their dispute, just go in the backyard and have it out, right? You're not going to do that because you as a parent see these two children and say, my children are not going to put their dukes up and knock each other's teeth out. It's not going to happen. There's a time that Israel was called to go to war. They were called to defend themselves, and at times God used them to be called to go in and be an arm and extension of God's justice in a pagan and foreign land. But God never tolerated his own children fighting his own children. And Joab seems to have forgotten that. 
And I know that we have some sympathy for him because it wasn't even his idea and he's kind of being coaxed into it. And everyone looks at him because Abner just challenged Joab. But Joab makes a colossal mistake by agreeing to do it. Don't do it. And he does it. And if you have any doubts that God doesn't approve of this method of settling disputes between brother Israelites, look at what happens in the next two verses. They stood up and they were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve for David. So Abner's got his men from the north. Joab has his men for the south. Each man grabbed his opponent by the head, thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they all fell down together. Can you imagine that? What are the chances of, of 24 people dying like that? I mean, you've seen perhaps the, the reels of a boxing match where two guys go out, throw a punch, and they both knock each other out. That's what happens here, only it's not boxing gloves with padding on the end. These are daggers, and everyone goes out, and in all 12 matches, everyone rushes out, and everybody grabs their opponent's head, stabs the, you know, shoves the dagger into their side, and they all go, and fall down dead. 24 people. What was that? Coincidence? That was God's divine, clear disapproval of trying to establish God's will this way. You don't do it. If it were God's will for Joab to have done this, don't you think the 12 men from David's tribe would still be standing when it was over? No, you don't do that. Time to fight defensively, but there's not a time in Israel to, to fight your brothers and, and say, okay, we agree to this. Yeah, you take your 12 guys, I'll take my 12 guys. The bottom line here is that Joab, on the right team, pursuing the right goal in the will of God in terms of his purpose for being there, ends up doing God's will his way. And that is a huge, colossal mistake. And we may look at fighting God's will and say, I'm not fighting God's will. You know, you talk about career. I know, I know for positive sure I'm in the right career that God has called me to. I'm in the right relationship that God wants me in. I'm living in the right neighborhood. I'm in the right part of the country. I know I'm in God's will. And you may say, great, I can check out for the rest of the sermon. You can't. Because it's not just about doing God's purpose, whether it's my job, my family, my career, my relationships, and all that. It's doing it his way. You may be in the right relationship living by all the wrong standards. You may be at the right business, in the right career, doing it by all the wrong values. You may be in the right setting and geographical place in your life, living, though, wrongly, pursuing God's will the wrong way. I once knew a guy in seminary who was known for cheating in seminary. Did you catch that? Think that one through for a second. This is a place we train people to do ministry, right? And this guy was a cheater. He was cheating his way through seminary. The Right purpose, I suppose. I mean, he sits back at night and thinks, well, you know, God's called me to the ministry and go to the ministry. I should get some training, get some training, learn the languages, learn some theology. And to do that, I need to go to seminary. So I'm going to go to seminary to pursue God's will for my life. But you know what? I didn't quite have time to write that paper. Can I borrow your paper? I heard you wrote a paper on that topic last semester. Can I borrow that? Put my name on it. Oh, by the way, I heard you just took that test. Could I see that test? And think about that. I mean, this guy thought he was doing God's will and he was trying to do it his way. I know people confident that they've been called to start their own business, and they've started their own business, but because that business doesn't seem like it's going to be solvent, they have broken the rules, and they have done their business illegally, thinking that in some way the end justifies the means, thinking, I know God has called me to do this, and if I don't break some rules in this job, then you know what? I'm not going to survive in this job, and I know God wants me in this job, so I'm going to have to do that. 
Or we fudge on our resume, or we cheat to get into that college, or we do whatever it takes to get our thing established because we know our thing is God's thing, but we're doing it our way. Don't do that. I put it this way in your outline number two, if you're taking notes. If we want to navigate through God's roadmap for our life, we've got to avoid the shortcuts. Because much like Abner coaxing Joab to take a shortcut, Satan will be in your life almost every week telling you, here's a shortcut to God's will in your life. Oh, you're in the right relationship, but you know, here's how that ought to work. I know you're in the right place, but here's how you ought to do it. I know you're in the right business, but you've got to do it this way, because if you don't do it that way, it's not going to happen. I know God's called you to that, and you ought to do it, but think about that. That is not God's will for our lives. And Joab learned it in a costly way. He learned that shortcuts are really detours in disguise. Shortcuts in the Christian life, shortcuts to accomplish the will of God, shortcuts to accomplish the purpose of God are costly detours. They always are. They'll do nothing but cause you grief and frustration in your Christian life. And if it wasn't enough to see a guy trying to do God's will his way, right in the middle of this chapter two, we see another guy Actually, Joab's younger brother, it says in verse 18, the three sons of Zariah were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. Now, you probably haven't been called that, but that just means that this guy is really, really fast, right? He can run really fast. So running really fast, as these people split from this battle scene, he decided to chase Abner. Now, why chase Abner? Well, Abner was the mastermind behind this rival kingdom and this whole puppet king, Ishbosheth. So he says, I know what I can do. I can take this guy out. And since I'm the fastest guy in the tribe of Judah, I'm going to run after Abner and I'm going to kill him. And the Bible says in verse 19, he didn't turn either to the right or the left. He pursued Abner. I can do it. I can end this thing right now. Abner looked behind him and says, is that you, Asahel? He said, it is. And Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or the left and take one of the young men, fight with him, strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. What's he doing? Well, here's the most experienced, successful, decorated commander in Saul's army. He's probably killed more people in his lifetime than anybody else in the northern kingdom. And all of a sudden, here's this upstart, fast-running brother of Joab coming after him. He says, you know, don't. Don't come after me. Fight somebody. Come after me. Don't come after me. You come after me, I'm going to kill you. And if I kill you, what's the problem? Verse 22. He says, if I strike you down, how could I look your brother Joab in the face? I mean, there was some kind of negotiations that needed to go on between the north and the south. We had to have, you know, some kind of, of normalcy here. If he enraged the commander of David's men by killing his little brother, he's thinking that's going to throw everything off. But the text says in verse 23, and you need to underline it, Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. Remember I said Abner was stubborn? Abner was stubbornly fighting God's will. Right here, you see a man on the right team pursuing the right goals. He's doing it in his time in a stubborn way. He is as stubborn as Abner is, trying to do the right thing, establish the right thing in his life, but he wants it now. And he says, I can, I can accomplish this now. I can do it now. I can kill the heart of the, of the whole enemy clan. Let me just take him out. Well, God wasn't too happy about that either. Here's the gross part, middle of verse 23. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. And he fell there and he died on the spot. And every man from the southern army that was coming up passing this spot, they stopped when they came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. Can you imagine what his brothers thought? 
Well, here's what they did, verse 24. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. You bet they did. They had revenge in their eyes. They were torqued. They were following him with a passion. They wanted his head on a platter. And the Bible says, as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amah near Gaia, in the wasteland of Gibeon. The men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into this big blockade, this big group, and they took their stand on top of the hill. And Abner calls out as they take this stand on this hill, and Abner says to Joab, must the sword devour forever. Don't you realize this will end in bitterness? Now we say that's a convenient time to have a speech on peace, right? <laughs> I mean, you just killed the guy's little brother. He's coming after you, wanting to kill you. You can see there's blood in his eyes. And now you want to stop and talk about peace. Now, whatever his motive, and no matter how shrewdly timed this is, it may be the wrong time and the wrong motive to start calling a truce, but the truce is needed. Look at what he says in the last phrase of verse 26. How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their, what, brothers? That's the problem. This is not God's way to solve the problem. That's not what we're to do. Now, he may have the wrong time, wrong motive, and all of that. It may have been real self-serving, but he had the right reason. And the reason for us to stop all this fighting is we're brothers, and God does not condone fighting among the brothers. You don't do it. And because there's some godliness beating in the heart of Joab, even though he's grief-stricken and angry and furious, it says in verse 27, Joab answers as surely as God lives. If you hadn't spoken, our men would have continued the pursuit of your men, the brothers, until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet. All the men came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. Now think about the pathetic picture that's just been painted. Here is a guy fighting God's will for Israel. Here is a guy trying to establish God's will, but doing it in the wrong way. And a brother that wants it now, trying to take a shortcut in God's plan. And when it's all said and done, we're no better for it. We're no closer to God accomplishing his purpose for Israel. All we have in the rest of this chapter from verse 29 and following is a body count and a funeral and people that are frustrated and ticked off. Now think about that. When we fight God's will, we're going to lose. When we take shortcuts in God's plan for our life, trying to rush God's will in our life, we're going to lose. Unfortunately, chapter divisions sometimes come at some real bad and inopportune places. So we need to, to complete this picture and bring some kind of encouragement to this message, we need to include verse 1 of chapter 3. It says in verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted, underline it, a long time. It was 14 years from the time that David was anointed and told God's plan for his life. He had a sense of what God wanted him to do. He had waited 14 years running from Saul, traveling in caves, being a fugitive in a foreign land. And we skimmed by it, and we didn't read it, but if you look back up sometime at chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, you'll see it was going to be another seven years until all of Israel would embrace him. And in those seven years, there was nothing but warfare, and he was having to defend himself between rival and hostile parties who wanted to affront his calling in his life, who wanted to tear him down and say, you're not who God has called you to be. And his dream that God had instilled in his heart, his desire to be the king that God wanted him to be, was put off for 21 years. It lasted a long time. And when it comes to reading the roadmap of God's will for our lives, Third thing that we need to note this morning is that you and I need to think long term. 
If we don't think long-term, if we start thinking short-term, or we want God to act immediately, we're going to get frustrated. We may get discouraged thinking that God's will for my life is never going to be accomplished. Or we may start second-guessing what God's will is in our lives. Don't do that. You see, because when God purposes something for your life, He doesn't have a problem making you wait for it. Sometimes He wants us to wait for it. In David's case, he wanted him to wait 21 years. In, in the Apostle Paul's case, think about it, an urgent gospel message to declare to dying people who need the gospel. He told them on the road to Damascus exactly what he was going to be doing, a testimony, a light to the Gentiles, to speak before kings. And then you know what God did with Paul as soon as that happened? According to Galatians chapter 1, he threw him out in the desert of Arabia for three years. Now think about it. By month 13, I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? Right? I got a gospel message. I'm supposed to be in ministry. You've called me to ministry, and I'm sitting here in Arabia for three years. That doesn't make any sense. What about Moses? Moses had a sense. We know it by his actions that he was called to be the leader of Israel, to bring God's people out of bondage, out of Egypt, into the promised land. He knew that. And when he killed that Egyptian, he knew what God had called him to be. He did it in the wrong way, and God said, it's not time yet. Do you know how long God made Moses wait from that time until he actually delivered them from Israel? How long, Sunday school graduates? Forty years. <laughs> God doesn't have a problem giving you a sense of his will for your life and then saying, okay, wait. You may be single here this morning, and you may be convinced that God has called you to be married. And you're saying, hey, God, um, <clears throat> what's up? God doesn't have a problem putting that in your heart and giving you peace about it and then making you wait. He had no problem in my wife and I's life to get us married really young, give us a heart for children. My wife became a school teacher. I love kids. We wanted children. And God said to us, hey, wait, and made us wait a whole decade until we could have children. What's with that? God has no problem saying to you, I want you in ministry. I want you to do something for the kingdom. I want you to do this thing, and you try at it, and you work at it, and it doesn't seem to work out. And God has no problem making you wait. He may put you in a career or get you in some business and have you do something, and then you're sitting there for a decade saying, God, why is this taking so long? If you think short-term, you'll get discouraged. That's why David wrote so many psalms about waiting on God. That is a theme all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple references to jot down. Psalm 27, David writes this song about waiting on God. It says in verses 13 and 14, I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What's he saying? I know God's going to be good to me, but he knows what it was to wait 21 years before God was good in a complete and thorough way in accordance with God's will for his life. And the next phrase, he says, wait for the Lord, as though he's talking to himself. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. You need to learn to be patient when it comes to going where God wants you to go. Psalm 37, 34, another psalm of David. David writes, wait for the Lord and keep his way. I love that. Keep his way. Stay on the path. No shortcuts. Don't fight God's will. Be patient. It may take a long time. Wait on the Lord. Keep his way. And he will exalt you and you will inherit the land. God's plans for you are good, but he doesn't give them overnight. And to this microwave generation, we sometimes have a problem with that. I was reading an article this week on the will of God. Someone that I'm quite sure would be disappointed with my message this morning and with the messages we've spoken previously in the book of First and Second Samuel about God's will. Because we've spent a lot of time looking at these passages and discovering the principles of Scripture that I think lead Christians to be very careful, to be very cautious, to take very careful attention to the decisions that they make so that they're on the right path at the right time in the right way. The author of this article wrote, about the opinion 
that this author held about the will of God and said, those that try to make you think and be careful and plan and strategize and seek God and ask him and all of that stuff, the bottom line was that's just a bunch of legalism. This gal said, you know, just a bunch of legalistic advice on finding God's will. It's not that way. It's all about freedom and blah, blah, blah. Interesting thing happened to my son and I this week. We were uh, boarding a big jet plane in Dallas. We were taking a transferred flight there. And as we walked on, as sometimes happens, as you're going through the jetway there and you're getting onto the plane, the pilot's getting his cup of coffee. And he was getting his cup of coffee and the door was cracked open to the cockpit and he was walking back in. He saw my two and a half year old son and he said, oh, my son, you know, said, uh, would you like to see the cockpit of the airplane? Of course, I acted uninterested and walked in quickly behind him. And, I want, to, I want to check this thing out, you know? I've never seen this. So he's talking to my son about all these gauges and stuff, and my son and I are looking around in this cockpit. Wow. There's dials, there's knobs, there's gauges, there's digital readouts, there's analog readouts, there's numbers, there's stuff everywhere. And I leaned back and thought to myself, legalist. I thought, you know, isn't just a windshield and a steering wheel enough for you? You know what I mean? Just get out there and fly. Be free. Don't be governed by all these gauges and checking them and books and looking through what we ought to have in the RPMs and the oil pressures. Just go, man. Pull us out of the gate and forget it. Just a little mug holder there and a steering wheel. Just go. Are you tracking with me here? Why in the world are there so many gauges in that airplane? Because if we're going to get where we're going and we're going to know that we're going the right direction and we got everything just right and the RPMs are just perfect and we're going to get there in the right time, we got to have gauges and we got to check them and we got to read them. And I don't call it legalism when I lay on our shoulders the responsibility to be careful not to fight God's will, be careful not to do it our way in our time, and we're willing to wait as Christians for God to do what he wants. I don't think that's legalism. I just think that's wisdom. It's wisdom so that we become the people God wants us to be and we arrive at the right time and we don't rush it. This week, don't fight God's will. Stop kicking against the goats. Don't take any shortcuts, no compromise. And think long-term because if he doesn't get you there by this year or next year, God's got a plan. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Keep his way. You're listening to pastor, author, and teacher, Mike Fabares, and this is Focal Point. Today's message focused on 2 Samuel chapter 2, and it's helping us learn how to navigate God's roadmap for our own lives. To hear the first part of this message, just go to focalpointradio.org. We hope today's message has been an encouragement to you. We know this has been a rough year for many. It feels like we've been treading water in a stormy sea, right? Well, at Focal Point, we're here to point you to the Savior who commands the wind and the waves. He's not panicking over world events. And when we trust in Him, we don't need to be afraid. He'll help us take the long view. One of the best ways we can adopt God's perspective on life is by learning to love the Scriptures. And that's what this month's featured resource is all about. It's a book called How to Eat Your Bible, written by Pastor Nate Pickowitz. If you're feeling distant from God, 
Could it be that you're ignoring His Word? But maybe you don't know where to start. How to Eat Your Bible will help you cultivate an appetite for lifelong study of Scripture. We'll send you a copy of this relevant book with our gratitude when you give a gift of any amount to support Focal Point. Thank you for investing in this work so others may know the truth of the gospel message. Request How to Eat Your Bible when you go to focalpointradio.org. You can also donate and request the book by calling 888-320-5885. And if you'd rather send your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Or maybe you're ready to take your support to the next level by becoming a Focal Point Partner. Monthly support from our faithful friends provides us with a reliable source of income so we can continue to bring you this daily program. Join the team today at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday, right here for Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.